So this morning, this morning as I was getting ready, spending some time with God, um, grabbed my Bible. And you know, do you ever like find things in your Bible that you didn't realize were there? Uh, and I'm not talking, yes, yes, we find scripture, but I'm talking more like just, just cards and things like that. I had a connection card that fell out of my Bible on my lap as I'm, I'm spending some time with Jesus this morning. And so, and it had a message on it, and half the time people will hand me stuff on Sunday mornings, and I have absolutely no idea, like, pastors are brain dead on Sunday mornings after the service, so I apologize if you hand me checks and things like that, more often than not they get washed in my pants, and then we have like a wad that I hand to Rob and later go, hey, this was for, for you. Um, then she has to kind of forensically figure out what was going on with that thing. So anyway, this fell out on my lap. I have no idea if somebody just put it there. Um, or handed it to me, my guess is they just put it in my Bible because when I read the message, totally anticipating it was going to be an affirmation of some sort, this is what I got. Ha, 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 I will get even soon. <laughs> Father, is there something you're trying to tell me? Like, right? So I'm sitting there with that thing. And I'm going, who? Who, right? And then as Jill's up here this morning kind of doing the, the announcement about the trunk or treat and how Jeannie and Charlie, our munchkins, can uh, do the thing. I go, it, it, was the, it was the Hobbit comment two weeks ago. <laughs> I put my Bible down here and I just know that, that Charlie, and so I just want to say in front of everybody, where is Charlie? Where are you at? There you are. Charlie, I apologize for mocking your stature. It'll never happen again. But I need to just say that I th- this is a little beneath you, my friend, okay? I thought you were a bigger man than this. But apparently the opportunity kind of went over your head, so, you know, we'll move on. I'll be looking forward to my next card, my friend. <laughs> hey, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to dive in this morning. Uh, I just need to say... We tear down to build up around here, and teasing is one of our greatest love languages. And just in case that you ever question that, this morning, you know that Jeff and Lisa, uh, Jeff and Jen had a very, very difficult week this week, uh, and it only got more difficult for Hefe. It just kind of felt like hit after hit after hit. They had their anniversary on Friday. They woke up to a radiator that had burst in their car and got their car towed. It's like, happy anniversary! It just keeps getting better. So... Our youth group, in order to love Jeff, recognizing that he would no longer be able to drive himself to the beach right now, brought the beach to him and filled his office with about this much sand (laughs) so he can go fishing while he's at church, which is great. It's a gift. This is how we show love at Lighthouse. Um, But it has nothing to do with anything other than I am just so proud of our youth group. And prepare yourself because it may come back to you. Possibly. Possibly. I know. Jeff, she just threw down the gauntlet. But anyway, uh, Ephesians chapter 3. Now, before we dive into this this morning, I just want to remind us that uh, it is very easy to begin a new chapter and think that we're beginning a new thought. But in case you didn't know this, uh, the, the chapter, the section, even the verse headings that we have in our Bible were not something that was original to our Bible. This was actually added in about 1550 by a French biblical scholar who said, you know, it would be a lot easier 
than saying, hey, turn with me to the 237th line or, or turn with me to the 43rd paragraph of the book of Ephesians. It would be a lot easier if we had something to help us navigate it. And so he kind of laid this uh, kind of framework of chapter, section, and verse uh, breakdown for us to use. And admittedly, it's much, much easier to be able to say, hey, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3 than having to count the number of lines where we're going to start studying it. That said, it brings with it a couple of issues. And one in particular is that it breaks down the flow of a unified thought. His letter to the Ephesians is just that. It's a letter. And how many of you guys, when you get an email or you get a letter in the mail, read the first paragraph, put it down, sit on it, and come back to it the next day to read the second paragraph, right? We don't do that. We read the whole thing in its entirety. Some of you, Others of you skim the first line and the last line and think you know everything, and you've missed the whole point. So guys, read the whole stinking thing. Ladies, we appreciate you for actually spending the time reading what's been written. But, but for the book of Ephesians, it could be really easy for us to read this as if it's just a whole bunch of uni, you know, disunified thoughts and we can just study one after a time. But that's a little bit like going and watching a movie that was made for the big screen to be seen in its entirety. Watching that on TBN or something, uh, or TNT. Probably don't watch a lot of movies on TBN. Maybe. Uh, but you watch it on, on, on TNT or on television with dozens of breaks for commercials. Although all of the pieces might be there, you have now kind of started breaking the flow and you miss the heart of what is intended. Or you might think that you can dive in right at the beginning of a chapter and think that a brand new, uh, a brand new thought is going to begin there, not realizing that so much of the meat of what is being digested here actually began a chapter before or two chapters before. And that's precisely the issue we run into this morning when we begin reading in Ephesians chapter 3, is that the thought that Paul is going to be explaining, that he's going to be exploring this morning, began in chapter 2. And so we can't understand chapter 3 without understanding what's come before it in chapter 2. Let's go back there for just a moment and say, what was the big thought that Paul began to explore last week as Jeff kind of taught us? in chapter 2. And it comes down to this. God has done for his church, for his people, what no uh, bill in Congress, what no social kind of movement can do, and that is to unify two people together. Because our society tends to like to build walls, don't we? We like to divide over things like Jew, Gentile, male, female, rich, poor, have, have not, Democrat, Republican, independent, the color of our skin, the level of our education, the volume we like our worship at, whatever it happens to be, we love to build walls and divisions. And the message that Paul said is, the cross has done just the opposite. It has broken down those barriers those dividing walls that we build in our hearts so that two very disparate people can be brought together into one. And in so doing, we can glorify our Father in heaven. And so to, to look at this a slightly different way, we often talk about the cross and, and the blood that Jesus spilled upon it, cleansing us of our sins so that we can be reconciled to God, which is utterly true. 
But that's not all that the cross did for us. Because on the cross, Christ's blood also acts as a glue that binds very different people together into a mosaic that represents our Father's heart. Now, have any of you guys ever seen or maybe even made a mosaic? A mosaic is something where you have lots of small pieces, maybe they're rocks, maybe they're pieces of glass, shards of pottery, lots of different colors, lots of different shapes and sizes, oftentimes with very jagged edges. It's the kind of stuff that you would most likely, if you saw a single piece of a mosaic on the floor, you'd pick it up and throw it away so somebody doesn't get cut. And yet when you take all of those pieces and put them together, that mosaic begins to represent the heart of the person who made it. So I have here a mosaic that my boy, Ethan, made this summer. And, and if you don't know what it looks like, that's okay. When I first looked at it, I had no clue either. So Ethan was very excited. He got to make this this summer. This has actual pieces of glass all over it. All of them are very jagged. If he had even one of those pieces just holding it, we'd be like, throw that away now before you cut yourself or your brother or something else. But together, it's beautiful. And, and when, he, when I first saw it, he goes, Daddy, what do you think it is? And I go, ah, uh, it's beautiful, son, <laughs> right? And he goes, no, what is it? I go, is it the letter E? And he goes, no. It's the letter F. And I go, oh, that's great. Ethan, Grayson, Eric, Kathy, Wayman, I don't, we don't have an F in any of our names. He goes, Daddy, F for family, because we're family. And I'm like, buddy, this is amazing. And so it, it has taken pride of place in our home on our mantle because we just love the heart of my boy. And this is what a mosaic does. It takes lots of different pieces of, of something that by themselves would be trash, and you bring them together and it becomes a unified whole that represents the heart of the one who made it. And in the same way, what Paul is saying is that together, that's not going to stand up, so we'll put it there, that together, we, the church, people from lots of different backgrounds, lots of different walks of life have been unified together in Christ so that we can represent his heart to the world and the people we come in contact with. Does this make sense? Good. Because if not, I mean, you're not going to follow the rest of what I'm going to say today. So that would be a problem. So with that, Paul b- comes right out of this thought that we are a unified whole, that the church is being built up to not only be a house for the Holy Spirit residing in our midst, but so that we will be a beacon of hope, a light reflecting the light of his love into the world around us together. And then Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 3, For this reason, because two have become one, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and then Paul pauses the thought he was about to go in because he wants to lean into a thought that they might not understand. So he, he kind of goes off on a little bit of an aside, and that aside is what we're going to look at this morning. He says, Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I've already written briefly. In reading this then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which wasn't made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. And this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. 
I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. And although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers, the authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my suffering for you, for their, which are for your glory." One of the things that's important before we actually begin to, to pull this apart and tease out what Paul is getting to, one of the things I have to constantly remind myself is that the Bible didn't just fall out of heaven with fake leather that likes to peel off um, and, and in a language that I can understand and with all of Jesus' words kind of highlighted in red. That's not how the Bible came into being, although these are God's words and they are true for us and they are utterly, uh, you know, relevant to where we are today. We have to first and foremost remember that these words that were inspired by the Holy Spirit were, were filtered through human beings who were living in a very different context from our own and writing to an audience who was also living in a different context. And so before we can ever ask, well, what does this mean to me? We first need to ask the question, well, what did this originally mean to its original audience? How would they have heard it? And then we can ask, what does this say to us? Context is really crucial for us to be able to uh, accurately and properly unpack or exegete God's word. So before we dive into this, let me just remind you of, of, I think it's probably time for us to lean into what was going on with Paul and the circumstances he was within that caused him to write this. You see, when Paul is writing to the, the Christians living in Ephesus, which is a pagan town, a pagan city that was world-renowned for its pagan worship of a goddess Artemis, when he was writing to them, he was not in Ephesus. He was actually in an even more pagan area, a more powerful area called Rome, the most powerful city of the most powerful nation in the world at that time. And Paul wasn't in Rome as a visitor. He was in Rome as a prisoner under house arrest, awaiting a trial that could potentially end with his execution, which then begs the question, well, why was he arrested? I mean, had he poured sand into somebody's office or, you know, had he made somebody upset? What, what had he done? The truth is that Paul was arrested and, and on, on trial because he had the audacity to preach a gospel that declared that Jesus, this nobody carpenter from Nazareth, was the long-awaited Messiah, God's anointed redeemer that he, that the Jews had been waiting for centuries for God to send to redeem them from their oppressors, whom they thought to be Rome, not realizing that God was really coming to redeem them from the power of sin and the chains that had shackled them and kept them separated from their father God. But that's not the reason why he, was, he had really elicited the ire of the Jews. What really made them angry was the fact that he had the audacity to suggest that Jesus, 
the long-awaited Messiah was not just the Redeemer of the Jews, God's chosen people, but of the Gentiles as well. People who did not have Jewish blood, people who had not been chosen by God and covenanted with Him at Sinai. People that for the Jews, this was not only audacious, this was scandalous. Because in that day and age to a Jew, a Gentile was on about the same level as a tax collector, which are about as popular as they are today, um, as a prostitute, as a murderer, as an attorney or a lawyer. I mean, that's how bad it is. And he's saying, wait a minute, to, to Jews who felt like they would be unclean if they even sat and ate with a Gentile. You mean to tell me, Paul, that Jesus came to save them and that in Christ we are all on the same footing and we all have the same value in God's eyes? No. We will not accept that. And they were so irate about the audacity of that message that they did anything and everything they could to shut him up. They tried to kill him by stoning him. There was a group of them that said, hey, we're not going to eat again until Paul is dead. They basically were going to take matters into their own hands. And when that didn't work, they turned to the Romans, this occupying force, and they said, hey, listen, Paul is preaching and, and trying to raise up a rebellion against Caesar. And we're really concerned that Caesar is going to be supplanted in the minds of people. You just want to be aware of Paul. And that's what ultimately led to his arrest is that for the Jews, they turned to whom originally they considered to be their most hated enemy, Rome. And despite the fact that Rome had taken over their country and taken it away by force and murdered their people and kept them in subservience, they still turned to them to help them because to them, the gospel message of inclusivity that Paul was preaching was more hateful than suppression. That says something. And so when Paul says to to the Gentiles living in Ephesus, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, he's not talking about that hypothetically or metaphorically. He is a literal prisoner under house arrest in Rome. And he's there because he preached a gospel that was hateful to the Jews, but absolute music to the ears of the Gentiles. Because for once, they were hearing that God was for them as well. And so he says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And then he realizes, if I start down this train of thought, some of these Gentiles might miss the gravity of what I've just said. And I don't want to... I don't want them to miss it. So he kind of pauses in that thought and he goes off on what could be considered a rabbit trail except for he's trying to hammer home for the Gentiles, which, by the way, the vast majority of us in this room are of Gentile you know, descent. We, don't, we are not Jewish originally. And so this is for us as well. This is good news. He says, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is this mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this, then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which wasn't made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets who then revealed it to the people of God. 
This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Now let's pause for a moment because in that little paragraph, three or four times this word mystery came up. And as English speakers, we kind of automatically translate that to mean what we typically think of as mystery, which is something that I don't know, something that I can't possibly understand, something that is a little bit like amorphous out there and it's confusing. But that's not what Paul means when he uses the term mysterion in Greek, which is from which we get the word mystery. Because for Paul, he'd already been sharing the mystery with them. He was in chains awaiting trial because he had been outspoken about this mystery. So the mystery can't possibly be something that the people don't know, although previous generations may not have understood it. It is now clear. So when he's saying this mysterion from God, this this mystery, what he means by that word is something that only God could have revealed, something that we could not have discerned on our own but had to be revealed by God. And what is that mystery? What has God revealed through his apostles, through his prophets, that now is much more clear to people than it was in previous generations? Look at verse 6. This mystery is that through the gospel, through the good news of the cross and of Jesus Christ, the Gentiles, non-Jews, are heirs together with Israel. And when you're an heir, that means you're a child So you're an adopted child of God. We talked about that several weeks ago. We're going to talk about it more next week. So the mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, one family, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Wonderful, powerful news for the Gentiles, but odious for the Jews. He continues... Verse 7, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. Now let's stop for a second. Because the first time I read this, I go, Paul, enough of the false humility. Oh, you are the least of all God's people. Sure, you wrote half the stinking New Testament. Come on, man. We know your track record. You know, you were zealous. I mean, if you just read a little bit of Philippians chapter 3, he kind of lays out his resume, all of the things. He was not the least of the Jews. So why does he say that? Is he just being falsely humble? Is he just saying, hey, guys, I, I'm nobody. So they'll be like, wow, wow, that Paul. Not only is he an amazing orator, but he is so humble. I don't actually believe that's true. Because consider this for a moment. Paul was well aware of his sins, of his mistakes. Paul was well aware of the fact that when the gospel first began to be preached, when the church first began to form in Jerusalem, Paul was not a proponent for it. He was an opponent of it. And he did everything in his power to stamp it out. He went to the Pharisees, to the the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish class, and he said, hey guys, can I have a letter that gives me permission to go to any city and arrest or have killed anybody 
who is preaching this false gospel of a crucified carpenter who is supposedly our Messiah? And they said yes. And Paul is well aware of the fact that when the first Jewish or the first Christian martyr was killed by being beaten with stones, it was Paul who presided over that, giving his blessing to what they were doing. So when Paul looks at the very Jews who had clamored for him to be arrested, he recognizes, I'm no better than them. In fact, I'm worse. I am the worst of all sinners. Because I overtly was opposed to the gospel and I sought to destroy it before it could ever take root. And yet, God didn't turn his back on him or throw him away like a piece of jagged glass that was cutting him. No, he took him, knocked him off his high horse, blinded him so he could finally see a little bit, redirected him, and then sent him back in not to tear down the church, not to destroy the gospel, but rather to build it up and to share the good news. And so Paul is able to speak to men and women who, are, who have felt their whole lives that they're far from God because I'm just a Gentile. I'm a nobody. I'm, as, as, as Jeff mentioned last week, they were considered cordwood for hell. It's a very encouraging thought, you know? That's what Gentiles were considered. That's what they were told by Jews they were. And all of a sudden, Paul is going, no, no, no. That may be what you were, but you don't have to. This God loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you. Paul recognizes the gravity of the transformation that's taken place in his own life. I once was opposed to Christians, and now I am one. I once was far from God. I thought I was serving him, and in fact, I was trying to thwart what he was doing. And he, in his grace, redeemed me from that and gave me not only new life, but a new purpose. And so Paul is able to speak to people who themselves feel far from God. So he said, I became a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. And although I'm the less than the least of all of God's people, and he means that, it's not false humility. This grace was given to me. I didn't deserve it. I should never have been used as God's voice box, and yet he uses broken pieces to build his beautiful mosaic to reflect his heart. So he, he, sent, he gave me the grace to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ, verse 9, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent, our Father's intent, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom or the multi-layered wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's stop for a second here. Because earlier I mentioned that like this mosaic, the church is it, people from different backgrounds, different walks of life are brought together to form a unified, consistent reflection of our Father's image. We are family, and in being family, in the way that we love one another, we reflect His heart to the rest of the world around us. But what Paul has just said in this last verse, in verse 10, 
ups the ante quite a bit. Because not only are we representatives of God's heart on the horizontal sphere with the people that we come into contact with at school, at work, in our neighborhood, at at, at, at the coffee shop or wherever you happen to frequent. But now he's saying that we also represent the Father's heart and reveal the Father's heart in the spiritual realm. Two, the, the term he uses here, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Now, what on earth are you talking about, Paul? Theologians disagree on, on how they interpret this. Some people say what he's saying is that the church represents God's heart to the spirits that are in opposition to him, Satan his minions, maybe even supposed gods and goddesses like Artemis that were worshipped in Ephesus. That's who the church gets to kind of show off the power of God's grace to. And and that's a viable interpretation. Others have said, no, no, no. Paul is talking about the angels in heaven. Because even in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, 10 and 11, he talks about the fact that the angels long to look into these things that have only now been being revealed. And so some people would suggest that the angels are with God, but they don't even fully see the, 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 the fullness of God's heart, except as it is revealed through his church. They are learning about our Father's heart through us. And however we choose to read this, maybe it's a little mixture of both, I don't think we need to land on it because ultimately the result is the same. We, the church, the mosaic of very different people with lots of jagged edges are being brought together and unified in Christ to reflect the heart of the Father to those we come into contact with here as well as in the spiritual realms. That's a big deal. I don't even fully think I comprehend it and I've been sitting with it for a couple of weeks now. Verse 10, God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold or multi-layered wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he has accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 12, in him, in Christ, and through our faith in Christ, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. We can come to God just as we are. Now, Many of us probably don't feel like we can come to God just as we are because we recognize just how jagged and broken we really are. We don't feel usable. We don't feel lovable. If anything, if we were to come into God's presence, we're going to come like, like that servant in the, in the parable of the talents that had the one talent and he buried it and he kind of slinks into the, father's, or into the master's presence like, I know he's not going to be happy about me. But Paul's saying, listen, you're not slaves who need to be afraid of, of the master. You are sons and daughters of God, adopted out of his love and in Christ with the impartation of the Holy Spirit so you don't have to come into his presence with head hung low and with fear in your heart. You can come like a child with your arms held high and joy in your heart because you get to be in your daddy's presence. You just want to spend time with him. Every morning, 6.30, on the dot, the moment that my boy's clock goes from yellow to green saying that you are allowed to get out of bed, it's like a herd of water buffalo. 
not, I'm not sure what a wa- herd of water buffalo sound like, but it's probably a little bit like Ethan and Grayson getting out of bed, jumping on the ground, running down the stairs. To this day, I'm so grateful they don't tumble down the stairs and jumping into bed with us. Or if I'm already up on the couch spending some time with God, jumping into the couch with me and spending 10 minutes with me and then going down and waking mommy up. It's a wonderful blessing that is also a curse of not getting to sleep in until they're like 25 or something like that. But it's beautiful. We love it. And they love it. They find, I mean, we are safety. And they find their peace there. And we don't have to come as slaves who are afraid of our Father and are aware of our faults. We can come as sons and daughters who are fully loved, not because of what we've done, but because of what He's done for us and who He is. It has less to do with our faithfulness than with His faithfulness. And so we can come just as we are. We are going to unpack that much more next week, so I'm not going to dwell on that. But let's just go ahead and finish out this section here. Verse 13. On the heels of saying that we can come, we can approach God with freedom and confidence, he finishes this thought with, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. So he, he finishes kind of where he began this thought with this idea of his chains. Don't be discouraged because I am shackled for the gospel. Yes, I know that I'm in chains in part, large part, due to the fact that I have been suggesting that you Gentiles are accepted and loved and that a lot of people don't like that. Please do not feel like these chains are an indictment on your worthiness. If anything, it is a declaration. It only serves to accentuate just how loved you are that God would go out of his way to reach for you and say, I love you. Don't stand far off. And by the way, don't be ashamed as if God's not powerful enough to protect me from this. Because the truth of the matter is, Paul's chains were not an impediment to his ministry. Some of the most beloved letters that we have in Scripture came out of that season where he was under house arrest. We can read them. The letter of Ephesians is one of them. So the fruit of that time continues to minister to us here and now, but also... Paul's calling was to be an ambassador of hope to people who were far off from God, who did not even realize that they needed to find hope in him. And what better place for somebody who practices what we like to call spiritual acupuncture, where you go to the kind of nerve centers of culture and and begin to spread the gospel there, and it begins to spread throughout that culture, what better place on the planet to go with the gospel message than to Rome, the single largest nerve center in the entire world that shaped the thoughts and lifestyle of an entire, you know, half the known planet at that part, at that point. And he's saying, listen, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of my chains. Because me being shackled here is only served to advance the gospel purposes. Not only do I get to share the gospel with the friends and and, and missionaries that come and visit me, but I get to share the gospel with with, uh, the, the Roman guards who are forced to sit here and listen to me. 
they get to hear the gospel message. And, by, and we know that many of them actually came to know Jesus Christ. Not only that, but Paul was looking forward to the fact that at some point he was going to go on trial and he would have an opportunity to share the gospel message with the most powerful people in the world at that time. He would get to sow seeds of hope into their hearts as well. And although it may not have swayed the, the, the Caesar at that point, we do know that a couple hundred years later, Christianity would be pulled by the, the, the Caesar of that time and would be pulled back into the center of the Roman Empire and Constantine would make Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. It would become known as the Holy Roman Empire and that those seeds would ultimately bear fruit. Now, it wasn't all pretty and it wasn't done perfectly and we are still dealing with some of the aftermath of politicizing a religion. But Paul's chains did not thwart or hinder the spread of the gospel. It only advanced it. So he says, don't be ashamed of it. All right, well, let's step back. His thought's going to continue. Next week, we're going to kind of wrap up this full thought. So this is part two of a three-part discussion of ultimately a single thought. But what should we do with what we've just read? Because my guess is that many of us here this morning don't wake up in the morning and go, oh, woe is me, for I am just a lowly Gentile that God could never use. Anybody have that thought? I didn't think so. Thank you, Darlene, for participating. I didn't think so. I haven't either. Because the beauty of this is that we no longer think in Jew and Gentile language. That said, I would imagine that there's a number of us here that wake up on any given morning. And when we maybe spend some time in God's word or we just think about God, we, we, we go, God couldn't use me. Why would he use me? I'm not articulate. Why would he use me? I mean, I remember what I did yesterday and so does he. Why would he use me? I haven't even graduated from high school. I never got my diploma I never got my degree. How, how would God use me? He's, there's way more better people that he could use. And I think that what Paul would say to us this morning is that God chooses to use people just like you and me to build the mosaic that represents or reflects his heart into our culture. So we don't have to come into his presence with fear and shame because of the things we may have done, we can come as sons and daughters who are loved in spite of our imperfections into our Father because we're part of the family. And he would remind us that God has a very, very long track record of using the last people you would ever think to reflect his heart. Let me just share a couple of them. Think of a guy named Abraham, or at the time he was known as Abram. He was a pagan that had worshipped lots of other gods. And yet God looked at him and said, I want to use you, Abram. I want you to follow me to a land I will show you. I want you to leave everything you know, and I will make a great nation out of you. Now, Abram followed, but he didn't always trust. There were times where more powerful rulers would, would come and they would look at his wife and say, your wife is beautiful. He goes, oh, she's not my wife, she's my sister, because he was afraid they were going to kill him and he didn't trust God enough. And so twice he almost gave his wife away, which is embarrassing, to say the very least. Twice, God had to redeem her and give her back to him. And yet, 
when this man was 90 years old, he still at that point did not have the child through which he would have a a nation that would come from him. And yet, to this 90-year-old man, he gave one child that became 12 tribes, that became millions of people and ultimately became the chosen people of God, the Jews, who were to represent God's heart and ultimately redeem the rest of the world, to be a blessing to the rest of the world. But they didn't quite get that, so they kind of missed the point. Or I think of a young kid named Joseph who was so obnoxious to his brothers that they sold him into slavery. Any of you ever want to sell your sibling into slavery? Don't. Don't put your hand up. Just nod inside if that's you, right? I know that Ethan would probably say, yes, I have. Sold the kid into slavery. He was subsequently accused of, of, of some things that he did not do, but yet was accused of them. And so he found himself incarcerated. And from that point, in jail, in a foreign land, God elevated him to a position where he not only was able to help and redeem God's people, the Israelites, and protect them from a famine, but he was actually able to be a blessing to the entire pagan nation in which he resided. God used him to redeem them. He's the last kind of person you would think God could do that with. And it was certainly a very circuitous path that he took. I think of Moses, right? He was a murderer, killed a guy, thinking he could stand up for the people of Israel. And so he killed an Egyptian slave driver, realized uh, this is going to get back to the Pharaoh. I'm, I'm going to die. So he ran away. Very, very courageous. Spent the next 40 years tending somebody else's sheep. And finally, God gets his attention and says, Hey, Moses, it's time. I'm going to use you. And he's like, Don't use me. I can't speak clearly. Use my brother Aaron. He's way more articulate than me. And God goes, Come on, dude. I'm going to use you to redeem my people out of slavery and to lead them toward the land that I promised your forefathers I was going to give you. So man up. Let's go. I think of David. Here's a young kid whose parents completely overlooked him, forgot that they even had him when, when one of the prophets wanted to meet all of the children. He's like, oh yeah, I got one more out on the field, but he's just the youngest and he's tending the, the sheep and he's nobody. And yet God used that nobody to take down a giant and to redeem his people. And that nobody became ultimately king of Israel and leading them. And he didn't have a perfect life. He made a plenty of mistakes. And yet God used him because he was humble enough to be guided and directed by God. We fast forward to the New Testament. I think of some of the men and women that Jesus invited to minister alongside of him. He didn't go for the cream of the crop. He didn't go for the ones who had gone to the pinnacle of of pharisaical school and learned and memorized the entire New Testament like the, the best of the best did in that day. They would memorize, I'm sorry if I said the New Testament, I meant the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament in their minds. This, this is what the cream of the crop knew. They knew it all by heart, which is kind of daunting. Who did Jesus grab? He grabbed fishermen who had either flunked out of Pharisee school or never went to begin with because they knew they couldn't hack it. He grabbed tax collectors. He grabbed zealots who were 
tantamount to terrorists of their day. We are going to fight the man by slipping up behind him with a knife and making our arguments known that way. That's the kind of people that Jesus invited to come with him. He even invited a woman who had demons attached to her. And after casting those demons out, she became one of the people who went with him and did, and she was actually the first person to see the risen Christ, the first person to spread the gospel. He used another demon-possessed guy, a guy named, we don't even know his name, he just calls himself Legion, used that demon-possessed guy as the key to unlock an entire region to the good news. We'll talk about that when we get towards the end of, of Ephesians. He used another woman, a Samaritan. So she had two knocks against her. She wasn't Jewish. She was kind of a half-breed Samaritan woman who had, who had been divorced five times and was living with a guy that wasn't even her husband. And, and Jesus used her to go and unlock that entire village of Samaria to the gospel. Or think of the guy that wrote the very letter that we've been studying. Here's a guy who hadn't been a supporter of the gospel, he had been a, an opponent of it and had murdered somebody to try to shut the gospel up. And God said, I can use you. Yeah, you might have some jagged edges. Yeah, you might have fallen pretty far away from my heart. You might have missed the point, but you are not trash. I'm not finished with you yet. And I think of them And I think of the ways that if God can use people like that, and that's just a tithe of the very, of of the hundreds of broken and imperfect men and women that God uses all throughout Scripture. If God can use people like that, imagine how He can use us to represent His heart. By ourselves, we have some jagged edges, and we're more likely to probably cut people than to be a blessing to them. But together, we can begin to reflect the heart of our Father God into the spheres of influence that we find ourselves in. As we love one another and as we love them, they find the hope. We're not pointing people back to ourselves. We're ultimately pointing people back to our, our author, our creator, our sustainer, our Father. And I close this morning... I'm going to invite Pete and the worship team forward. I close this morning with a declaration or a metaphor that Paul uses in a different letter to say virtually the same thing that we have been saying here. And that is that as representatives of our Father's heart, we don't represent Him for our own glory to make our own name great or to build our own little kingdoms. We represent him so that his name will be made great and so that his kingdom will advance. And so in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul uses the metaphor of, of, of a, a clay jar, something that you might stick flour in or, or, or knickknacks in. And he says, that's who we are. But listen to the way that God uses us. He says, for God, who said light, let light shine out of darkness, has made his light shine in our hearts. To give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. However, we have this treasure in jars of clay and earthen vessels 
so that it will show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us, so that He is glorified, not so that we are glorified, so that His kingdom advances, not so that ours advances. My, my whole hope, if you heard nothing else that I said this morning, it's this. Regardless of where you find yourself, I don't care how old you are, I don't care what your background is, I don't care what the color of your skin is, I don't care what your gender is, regardless of where you find yourself, I don't care who you voted for in the last election or who you're going to vote for in the next election. I don't care how much money you have in the bank. I don't care if you've ever tithed a single time in your life. I don't care the last time you prayed. If you are willing, God is not finished with you yet. And he can use you to glorify himself, but we need one another. Because we're in this together. Father God, have your way with us. Would you use your church, of which we are just one small gathering of over 50 of them in this city and thousands of them in this state and and more than you know, hundreds of thousands of them in this country and in this world would you use your people your children to reflect your heart so that men and women and children who have been created in your image and are walking in darkness would see the light reflected off of us and ultimately it'll be led back to you. For your name's sake, we pray this, Jesus. Amen. Let's worship as one family with one voice.